0: All right, Eric, it's getting closer. I'm looking forward to talking about Rowdy Roddy Piper this week. But before we do, I feel like we should circle back and talk a little bit about last week, what was the feedback you got from last week's watch along where Vince Russo won the world
1: title? You know, most of the feedback I got was pretty supportive of my point of view. I I didn't get too many people that argued with me and I think, you know, really. And I said this and I, I know this sounds you know angry and bitter and it, it, It's not really, but it's gonna sound that way. All anybody really has to do, if they have any questions at all about Vince Russo's ability or lack thereof, uh, or understanding of the wrestling business or lack thereof, or relationship to the audience or lack thereof, is just go back and look at that episode and ask yourself, does this content that I just invested two hours watching represent anything that I think is quality as it relates to professional wrestling. If the answer is yes then, you know, good for you. But I think most people that are objective will look at that garbage and and realize that you know, Vince Rousseau was a fraud from the get-go and this show that we broke down is a perfect example. of it.
0: Well, the only feedback I got was that uh, you were too hard on Vince and I got drug into a lot of that. I, you know, we've talked about Uh, that in real life, I'm pretty friendly with Vince Russo and he's always, I I treat people how they treat me and he's always been cool to me and people thought maybe it was unfair that I let you just pile on him last week. How would you respond to that?
1: Well, you've never had to work with him. It's easy to be, you know, fair and friendly and sociable with a guy that's never, you've never watched lie through his freaking teeth uh, and, and believe every syllable of it. Uh, until he's confronted with the facts and the truth and witnesses and then watch him break down and cry like a baby and run out the door. That's my experience with Vince Russo. You have the luxury of never having to have engaged him in business. And, And most of the people that support him have that same luxury. Those of us who have been in business with him and have worked with him have a much different feeling about him.
0: Well, I've got a good feeling about this week's episode. Roddy Piper, I gotta tell you, was not my favorite wrestler growing up as a kid, but I certainly appreciated, you know, his contributions to the wrestling business. And by the time I was watching though, WrestleMania, you know, the hype for that initial WrestleMania, I mean I, I was years beyond that. So the only time I really got familiar with Roddy Piper at a young age was when he was in his intercontinental feud with Bret Hart or maybe doing his angle with Bad News Brown, but not nearly the main eventer that he was before and what he's about to be here in WCW. But I think I've shared this on Tony's podcast before. I got back into professional wrestling in late summer, 1996, just flipping through the channels. And I see Hulk Hogan there in all black. And I thought, hey, wait a minute, what is this? And it captured my attention. So my first pay-per-view back was Fall Brawl '96. And I was hooked. I was all in. And Halloween Havoc 96, there I am. And at the end of the show, after Macho Man has defeated or has been defeated by Hulk Hogan. And that's the the episode where you see uh, Hulk Hogan wearing a hairpiece. I guess he was coming fresh off of a movie set. And somewhere in the course of the match, Macho decided to have fun and, and put the hairpiece on. And it was a good time. But those bagpipes start, and it really caught me and everybody I was watching at my house off guard. Oh, my God, Roddy Piper is back. And I want to really talk about that night. But before we do, I guess I should ask, when did you first meet Roddy? You had been around the business for a while at this point. Had you ever ran across Roddy, or did you not meet him until you guys
1: started working together? No, we never met until we started working together. And I am i was a little bit like you in in the sense that, I obviously knew who Roddy Piper was, you know before I got to WCW uh, as an announcer in the early '90s, and I certainly knew who he was um, once I started working in management and, and kind of moving up the food chain, so to speak. But I wasn't, you know I, ne- I know people are never going to believe this, in, and I'm not trying to convince anybody, but I never really watched the WWF consistently. I was certainly aware of it before I, you know, and before I even went to work for Vern Gagne, you know, it was a phenomenon. And we were all, you know, cutting our teeth on this new thing called WrestleMania and and WWF pay-per-views. And I was certainly, you know, a fan, but I wasn't a hardcore fan. I didn't watch every week. I wasn't that knowledgeable of the WWF product. You know, I knew Hulk Hogan from the AWA. So I was, you know, aware of him. And, you know, some of the other, you know, big stars like Randy and obviously Roddy Piper and Andre and, you know, go on and on and on. But I, I, I didn't pay close attention to Roddy's career. Um, and I met Roddy through a guy by the name of Mitch Ackerman. Mitch was an executive producer at Disney Studios and a huge wrestling fan. And I had met Mitch through Barry Bloom. Who, who seems to keep popping up <laughs> about every other podcast. <laughs> but um, I liked Mitch a lot. Mitch was a really smart guy and, you know, very talented, talented guy, really understood television. And we just, you know, we just hit it off socially. And Mitch and Roddy were friends. And the first time I met Roddy Piper was at Mitch Ackerman's home um, in Beverly Hills. And we just, you know, Rodney was such an easy guy to get along with, you know, when you first meet him. He was very humble, um, very understated, um, but he still had, as understated and humble as he was, he had a sense of stardom and charisma that was undeniable. You know, and Roddy wasn't a physically impressive dude. I mean, it's it's not like you walk into the room with, you know, Hulk Hogan or, or Kevin Nash or, you know, Sid Vicious or, you know, any number of other larger-than-life characters even in real life. Um, Roddy was about my size. You know, I'm five, 10 and a half. you know, probably at that time weighed about two bills. Roddy was probably a little thicker and heavier than me. Um, he was in better shape than I was. But, you know, just physically, it's not like... He, he dominated the room, but at the same time, his charisma kind of gave me the same impression as it would if he were like six foot six and three hundred pounds. It was really and it was really weird because he didn't try, and I think that's the magic. You know, that was the magic with with Roddy. It's hard for me to even speak of him in the past tense. Actually, it's I got to catch myself. But he he was a special cat. You know, he just had a twinkle in his eye, you know, in a way of carrying himself, even in a a casual conversation where you weren't even really talking about the business. You could be talking, you could be talking about food and he just had this edge about him that made him different than, than everybody else.
0: So this is a big moment, you know, when he debuts Halloween Havoc 1996, talk to me about why this is the right time, the right place, and the right story to debut him.
1: Well, it's I mean, it probably more than anything coincidence. You know, it, it would be easy for me to try to make it sound like there was some, you know, master plan. And, you know, we've we've come across these types of questions before where you on behalf of the audience are looking for the logic and, you know, the the master plan behind something as big as as a debut like this. And oftentimes it was just, you know, coincidence of good timing. You know, Roddy became available. We had worked out his deal you know, uh, we were obviously excited to have Roddy on the roster because it opened up a lot of creative opportunities with Randy and Hulk uh, because of their history and, and the legacy that they had had previously. There was a, you know, every, everybody was pretty much aware that, as often happens in professional wrestling over the years, you know, certain guys like Bret Hart, for example, and Hulk Hogan had heat. We all know that story we've heard it a million times and and Hogan and Piper had their fair share of tension that the the core audience the hardcore not the not the the passive audience or even the mainstream audience were not necessarily aware of, but your hardcore audience, people that really knew, you know, the ins and outs of the business and followed it very closely in dirt sheets or newsletters or whatever, they were well aware of that. And to, to me, that was like, okay, now we've, now we've got something real to work with. And, you know, we've talked about it many times at this period or in this period of time, 95, 96, 97, 98, I tried to capture real life relationships, real life challenges, real life heat, you know, whatever, whatever was real that the audience knew about to some degree. I tried to capture those moments of those relationships and turn up the volume on them and use them as a premise for story. And Roddy brought that to the table. So there was no real master plan is what I'm trying to say. Other than the fact that Roddy was excited. You know, he was probably excited because we had a lot of momentum You know, it it was a two-way street. We were excited about him, but he was excited to be there. He saw all the same opportunity that we did, obviously. WCW was on a roll. Nitro was the talk of the town, and we were outperforming everybody at that time, and and Roddy wanted to be a part of it um, Mm -hmm. as much as we wanted him to be a part of us.
0: Let's talk about the way you structure the deal. Meltzer would report that over the past seven years, there had been numerous attempts by WCW to sign Piper, all of which resulted in Piper returning to the WWF. Dave wrote, it had almost become an inside joke in the industry that Piper would negotiate with WCW just to get the word out to the WWF who would then bring him back in. And Meltzer would say that the gist of the deal is to work four or five wrestling matches per year and do about 15 interview appearances throughout the year And the prime focus of the contract is that Turner is going to be trying to develop a syndicated television show built around Roddy Piper as a bounty, a bounty hunter type. And the contract is apparently for huge money. That's all from the observer. And we did hear quite a bit about, you know, guys thinking that they wanted to come in and do television stuff. And this Turner relationship afforded that opportunity with a wrestling company. How much of that was true for Roddy Piper?
1: I would say a fair amount of that was true. Uh, again, you know, if you step back and realize that Brad Siegel, who was running TNT at the time, really didn't want wrestling. I mean, he didn't have any choice. He didn't get to vote. He wasn't even in the room when Harvey Schiller, myself, Ted Turner, and Scott Sassa were all um, there ostensibly to talk about doing a deal with Star Television Network and Rupert Murdoch in China when Ted decided to switch the script within two minutes and basically told me and Scott Sass and Harvey Schiller that we're going to do two hours head-to-head against Monday Night uh, Night Raw. (coughs) Brad, although he was president of the network, was not present in that meeting. And, in fact, you know, Scott Sassa spoke up. He was, Scott was right to my right. And Scott, you know, eventually went on to be, you know, president of, of NBC for a while. So Scott, Scott was a pretty powerful dude in his own right. And Scott, you know, s- s- sat up and said, Well, you know, Ted, you know, Brad's not even here. Should we wait till, you know, we have a chance to talk to Brad before we make that decision? And Ted's response is, Well, Brad's a very smart young man. He'll understand what I want to do, meaning he doesn't get the vote. Now, despite the fact that, that Brad had WCW thrust upon him. And in Guy Evans' book, you know, WCW Nitro, um, he he details that in much better detail than I just did. And there's some nuance in it about conversations that had taken place prior to my meeting with Harvey Schiller that I wasn't even aware about until I read that book, by the way. So it's pretty fascinating. But once Brad got the word <laughs> that he was going to be carrying – uh, Nitro, he wanted to make the most of it. He, he, Brad, was a very smart guy, and this is kind of an. I'm going to go into the weeds here. I'm going to give everybody, you know, an opportunity to take a piss break or whatever, because I'm going to talk about the business of the wrestling business. Some people like it. Some people get bored. But one of the challenges with professional wrestling, and I'm I'm talking you know, sports entertainment, WWE, even to this day. Uh, And certainly Nitro. That I know firsthand. Um, The challenge with the content, the genre, is that it definitely attracts a big audience. People will tune in. We've known that. We've been watching it now for 25 years on cable television. WWE is the number one highest rated show on all of cable television, 52 weeks a year. Bar none. So – we know that people tune in, but the challenge w- with it is that once people tune in, they immediately tune out. They don't hang around for whatever's coming up next. And in the television business, it's a called adjacent programming, meaning you want to have something, you know, if your show's on at eight o'clock on Monday night, then you, you, you try to find the right type of content that that audience that you know is going to come at eight. You want to also have something that they're probably also going to like. On at 7, so you could start building that audience before 8 o'clock. You're, you're leveraging that audience. So you're building a higher rated block of time. So instead of just getting a, a rating between 8 and 10, or in WWE's case, 8 and 11, you start building that audience at 7 o'clock. Now, with Nitro, we before we went to 3 hours, we'd go on at 8, we were done at 10, Right. Ideally, from Brad's point of view as a programmer, someone who designs, creates, and buys content to build the, the largest audience you can throughout in a, the course of an entire evening, not just a time period, but the entire evening, you're looking for content that complements your core content. In this case, Nitro was our core content, but ideally you would have movies of the week or other – perhaps even a series – that that core audience for Nitro would also enjoy watching, so you could own them for the whole night. And TNT at the time was doing a lot of original programming, meaning they would they would fund and produce original movies or original television series. So Roddy, being an actor who 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 had some not some credibility, he had good credibility. People recognize him as, as a solid actor who could probably carry a series, given, you know, all of the other variables that go into a series being right, right script writers, right directors, right producers, right cast. I mean, there's more than just, you know, one guy that goes into a, a successful series. But Brad looked at at Roddy as a guy that could carry a series. So that was one of the advantages that we had at, at Nitro or I had at WCW was that it allowed me to engage in a contract negotiation with somebody like Roddy and even Hulk Hogan to a degree. Sting, we did a movie with Sting um, on TNT. Um, We were able to have those discussions because there was a real – sincere interest in developing content that was adjacent before and after nitro that made sense for the wrestling audience so it wasn't just oh let's just throw them a movie deal oh let's just throw them a tv deal there was a a real bona fide serious interest in trying to develop those types of things and it was it was good for everybody
0: Let's talk about Hogan's role in bringing him in here. Uh, what's the relationship like with Hogan and Roddy? And is it originally Hogan's idea saying, hey, man, drew a lot of money with this guy. Maybe we should try to get him. Or what do you remember about Hogan's involvement?
1: No, it really wasn't Hulk. I mean, Hulk wasn't the the impetus behind it. He wasn't the first person to you know, reach out to me and say, hey, what about Roddy Piper? Um, it really was Mitch Ackerman who who reached out. And said, hey, I just want you to know I'm, I'm friends with Roddy. Uh, he's going to be coming by the house next weekend. If he happened to be in town, swing by. I mean, it was really that. That's, that's how casual and um, almost spontaneous it was. Uh, there was no – nobody was sitting, you know, in a boardroom at, at Turner or, you know, <laughs> at a tiki bar in Clearwater Beach, Florida – uh, over Miller lights saying, Hey, we got to figure out how to get Roddy Piper. Cause I drew a lot of money with him. That wasn't the case. It really was a, as a result of a casual meeting that took place because of a mutual friend in Mitch Ackerman.
0: What, uh, what's discussed what's like on Roddy's radar when you're talking about bringing him in, is he concerned about obviously the money matters, but the number of dates, the number of matches, is how much is the creative discussed? Sort of talk us through that process.
1: You know, it, it, it's funny, and I I don't know what Meltzer reported as his contract amount. And off the top of my head, I don't remember what it is or what it was. At least not the initial one. But Roddy wasn't Roddy wasn't like all about the money. Roddy was way more interested in the creative. And when I say that I mean in a general sense at a macro kind of level, not in a well if I'm going to wrestle this guy that I need to know what the finish is going to be and you know what how long is our program going to be in then what am I going to do next? It wasn't that granular of a discussion when it came to creative. I think what Roddy was really interested in from what I remember in, in that that meeting and I, and I do remember that meeting pretty well. Uh, because Raddy got so animated when we started talking about wrestling and his passion for it became really, really evident. You know, in the first part of the meeting, it was, hey, how are you? How's this guy doing? How's my buddy Ric Flair? How's this? How's that? You know, touching all of the kind of uh, um, you get to know each other kind of topics that we possibly could before it started getting serious. But once we started talking about you know, what was different about Nitro, why it was working. You know, there were certainly things that he saw that he loved. You know, he loved the NWO. He loved the fact that we were kind of breaking the mold and and disrupting the formula because that's the way Roddy was. Roddy was not a, in, in many ways, he was a traditionalist when it comes to wrestling. Um, he was a throwback in the most positive way one could you know use that word to describe somebody who believed in the product and lived by it and gave a lot to it um but he was also a very progressive thinking guy he knew and i think because of his experience in in television and movies and his interest in it and discussions that he had with with people other than wrestling people that you know all content has to evolve and wrestling is no different and I think what Roddy saw was the same thing everybody else saw at that period of time was holy shit this is this is hot you know what are you guys thinking what's the psychology behind this where you know where is the NWO going and we did get into those discussions what you know the kind of big idea was for, for an NWO versus WCW down the road and those were all things that he really liked and of course we did talk about you know, possibility of matches with Hogan and, you know, because Roddy hadn't talked to, to Hulk in, in some time by this point. They had kind of, you know, they didn't, I want to say, the, the, you know, people refer to it as heat. There was probably a little bit of professional tension between the two of them um, just because of things that had, they're
0: competitive. They both want to be the top guy and see themselves yeah. as the top guy. Yeah, you know
1: there was always this underlying current that Roddy didn't ever really want to do a job for hawks so Hulk didn't want to do one for Roddy. And childish shit when you really think about it, right? In in the bigger picture, but when you think about how much money was involved back at the time, it wasn't so childish. But they had both more or less kind of gotten over all that. There was still like a little residual that they'd carry around with them and they'd make comments to each other, everyone or to other people every once in a while, including me. But for the most part, Roddy was looking forward to the opportunity to work with Hulk, with Randy, certainly Ric Flair. I mean, Roddy loved Ric Flair. Rick and Roddy were they were they were tighter than tight.
0: Looking for a great Mother's Day or Father's Day gift idea? I was, and I found it at Paint Your Life. With Paint Your Life, you'll get a hand-painted portrait created to fit almost any budget, and it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You say Paint Your Life transforms your photos into a one-of-a-kind beautiful hand-painted portrait created by professional artists. You upload anything you can imagine. You can even combine photos. You'll pick the artist, the medium, you can even customize the frame. And you can receive your painting in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at PaintYourLife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, just text the word WEEKS to 87204. That's WEEKS to 87204. Text WEEKS to 87204. Paint Your Life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com terms for details.
1: Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.
0: So let's talk about the creative because I know that, you know, you sort of ran through what the big vision was, but you, you did touch on that. Maybe there's a little bit of professional jealousy is not the right word, but they were competitive. Did, is there a conversation because Piper has gone on record, shoot interviews, his book, whatever. I, f- I feed my family this way. I'm not putting my shoulders to the mat for any man. And so he just didn't, he didn't do jobs. And it feels like with Hogan, if you're going to have some sort of feud, that's got to be discussed. Does it come up? And, and how do you sort of make everybody happy? At least in the negotiation stage of the relationship,
1: it didn't come up. I mean, if if Roddy would have drawn that line in the sand at that meeting, the way he- you know, he had, no, I haven't heard those shoot interviews and I didn't read his book. So I'm at a loss here and I can't really comment on that. But ha- if, and I assume what you say is accurate and absolutely true. If, if Roddy would have said, look, you know, I'm anxious to come in there, but you know, I'm never going to put my, da- my, my shoulders down for any man. Cause this is the way I feed my family. I would have had to, you know, thank him for the opportunity to meet him. And it was certainly a pleasure. And I really enjoyed hanging out with him, but there would have it would have been impossible to move forward. I mean, Hulk didn't say that to me when he came in. I mean, I mean Randy didn't say that when he came in. Rick Flair certainly didn't have that position, so uh, I, that an exception would not have been made for Roddy, and and it, it it never came up. It it just it just didn't. There was it was more. Uh, I'm careful. I don't come off too goofy, but. I would say it was more childlike enthusiasm and excitement than it was um, professional awareness, you know, and caution. I mean, he was literally – he was so excited. I mean, that's – if I could – if I had to pick one word that would describe the tone of our conversations in that first meeting, whether it was about creativity or anything else, it was excited.
0: When – Word gets around the back that there, you guys are talking to Piper. What's the how's that received by everybody? Is anybody nervous or concerned, or is everybody pretty excited about him coming in?
1: No, I mean, not nobody nobody said anything like that to me. I mean, there may have been people who felt, oh my god, and I'm sure you know some of the mid card guys um, who were maybe thought they might be on the verge of breaking into that top tier you know, into that semi-main or main event kind of status or storyline would be a better way to say it, Um, may have thought, oh my God, here's one more guy, you know, one more rung to the ladder. I've got to figure out how to climb. Can't deny that, but nobody ever expressed it to me. Of the people that, you know, that I dealt with, you know, more regularly at that time, creatively, because I was more involved in it, um, Scott Hall, Kevin Nash didn't have an issue with it. As long as they got their check on time, they they didn't care. Hulk was actually excited about it. Randy was supportive of it. And Ric Flair was, he couldn't wait. So unless somebody had feelings that they never articulated to me, um, for the most part, I would say everybody was pretty supportive of it.
0: So Hogan gets through Randy Savage that night. The bagpipes play. Where are you watching Halloween Havoc 96 from, are you in the back? Are you in a gorilla position? Have you snuck into the crowd to see how
1: it's received? No, I, I never watched the show from gorilla position. Um, I just never did. It was, that wasn't my thing. I had a monitor in my office and sound, and I would say more than likely, because the office I had at the MGM Grand was sweet. <laughs> it was it was really nice, and it was catered very, very well so for the most part, unless I was cutting, you know, producing something or in, in, in the middle, of, you know, a promo myself backstage, I was in my office watching it.
0: So when you see him come out, he does the promo is the promo pretty much how you guys had laid it out. I mean, in this era, I don't think anybody's passing out scripts to Hulk Hogan or Roddy Piper. Talk me through how the creative for his verbiage is sort of discussed and then how you thought it came together.
1: You know, we start out early in the day. We, we knew generally, not generally, we knew had a pretty good idea what we were going to do and what we wanted to achieve. We knew generally what the outcome was, if not the actual mechanical finish of it. But we knew what the outcome was going to be and what the reaction to that should be. Uh, we knew the timing of Roddy's promo, so we would talk about it in a very general sense. The guys, you know, the guys involved, uh, anybody involved, would probably talk about it once we got closer to showtime. They'd start dialing it in in case any other changes or ideas uh, or concerns kind of evolved throughout the afternoon. And then generally, we would meet, you know, about six o'clock. On a pay-per-view day, we'd meet around six o'clock and just run through everything one more time. Um, I wouldn't, you know, in not being critical, but in WWE, you know, no matter who you are, and, and maybe there are exceptions that I wasn't aware of when I was there, but for the most part, you know, whether it was me or Ric Flair or John Cena or or anybody else that I ever worked with, you know, you had to rehearse your promos in front of your writers or your producers. At least to the point you, know, you didn't have to do it like in, in you know real time, so to speak, but they had to be really sure that you had your inflections and your tone and the verbiage was absolutely correct, and they had to sign off on it before you did it. Well, we weren't nearly that formal, particularly with guys like Roddy and Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage, um, Kevin Nash, you know Scott Hall, you know myself. Um, for the most part, those people were all good enough at what they did um, that everybody was comfortable just kind of ad-libbing. We had to, you had to know, you know, what are your three points? What's the beginning? <laughs> what's the middle? And what's the end? And we generally let the top guys that have demonstrated the experience and the creativity and, and the, the talent to do so improv as long as they stayed with within those guidelines well
0: let's talk about um you know obviously the promo was strong people are caught off guard it was in an era where the internet existed but you could still keep a secret and piper's debut was definitely handled that way it was a total surprise to me and i was excited for what was coming next but you don't see piper on nitro right away He doesn't actually make his debut until mid-November, and that's a pretty historic Nitro because it's not only Piper's Nitro debut, but it's also where you turn heel and join the NWO. Talk us through that night and what you remember
1: about it. Yeah. And one of the things, sometimes I was really successful at creating and building on that emotion of anticipation. Because I've always believed <clears> – <throat> especially – not always. I really started believing in 96, the summer of the 96 uh, – summer of 96. As a result of an article that I read in the newspaper, um, uh, Dick uh, – Oh, what was the guy's name that, uh, from NBC that worked a lot with Dick with Ebersole, Instagram. Dick Eversall wrote an article. I may have touched on this before in our podcast, but Dick Eversall wrote an, an article about how he was going to revive interest in the winter Olympics. And that article really talked about the elements that makes sports effective as, as entertainment. And I and I can't quote the article any longer, obviously, but what I did is I took those elements that Ebersol articulated so clearly in this article and made so much sense to me as a producer that, that I took those elements and I went, OK, well, not all of those elements work for professional wrestling because we're more scripted. We're not a real sport, but I can adapt and and modify those elements and, and use them as a filter For all of the ideas, because typically, you know, people come at you from 20 different directions, you know, whether it's talent or producers or, you know, agents or whatever, you know, ideas come at you from from everywhere. Right. And unless you have a filter or, or a guideline, a style book, if you will that helps you determine whether these ideas really are valuable or whether they're just they sound exciting because the person pitching you t- pitching it to you makes them sound that way. You know, going back to, you know, that was what Vince Russo was really good at. I mean, he could he could pitch you the most horrible shit in the world, but he was so passionate and so excited about it and such a good, you know, salesman that y- you would actually get caught up in it and if you weren't careful. But once I read that article, it kind of helped me determine a filter. And, and one of the things that, that was in my modified Dick Ebersol filter was the emotion of anticipation. And it's true in in every in everything. And I hope I'm not being redundant here and taking people into the weeds once again on something that I've talked about before. But if you look at our culture in the way we all grow up in America, for the most part, it's hard to generalize anymore. But I think for the most part – You know, we, we grow up and, you know, we look forward to our first day of school and we look forward to our birthdays and we look, we look forward to holidays, whether it's Christmas or Hanukkah or whatever your holiday is, we look forward to Halloween. You know, we look forward to getting out of school so we have the summer to, you know, hang with our friends or do whatever we do. And then as you get older, you you look forward to other things. You're looking forward to getting your driver's license because that's your first taste of freedom. And you're looking forward to graduating from high school or getting laid or whatever, whatever it is you're looking forward to. Your first real job, moving out of the house. Your whole life is really centered around these different benchmarks that you – are conditioned to look forward to. And I, I've always, since reading that article, I've always tried to apply anticipation as like one of the foundational criteria in any idea or or, or a timeline of an idea or a storyline. And the, the idea of introing Roddy as a surprise and then making people wonder, when is he going to show up again? Right. Without a, without a lot of teasing and foreshadowing, because when you foreshadow something, it takes some of the fun out of it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like your parents say, well, Conrad, you know, I know you want a bike for Christmas, but, you know, I'm not really sure. But what you know, if you get a bike, what color would you want? Right. You know, it, it kind of takes the, the fun out of it. And that's what we did with Roddy. Um, we wanted it to be more of a we wanted to build anticipation. We wanted people to talk about it and wonder. Again, one of the things that I did a lot, or at least I tried to do as often as I could, it's a better way to say it, is get people to ask questions as opposed to making statements. Roddy Piper's going to show up this Monday. I wonder when Roddy Piper's going to show up. He right. didn't show up last Monday. I wonder if he's going to show up the next Monday. When you get people to ask questions, they engage in your content. If people are making statements about it, maybe not, you know, it's not the same thing. They're not engaged in the same way. So that was the logic or lack thereof behind that.
0: And you're in the ring sort of saying that Piper won't answer the call and he won't sign the contract and you're sort of running him down a little bit. And then he appears and it becomes apparent and you're back and forth. When he's asking questions, like you say, you came to my house. Well, is the road to my ranch crooked or straight? And you can't answer. Eventually the NWO in its entirety shows up and grabs Piper from behind. And then you and Hogan hug and you shake hands with DiBiase, And now it's clear what's coming. And Piper is still challenging saying, you want to fight? You got to fight. And he's teasing, you know, when he'll be back with the contract the idea of putting yourself in the NWO, I'm sure we'll talk about in long form some other time, but why did it make sense to do it here in reference to the, the Piper angle?
1: Because Roddy was the one that forced to expose me. It got Roddy over and made him smarter than everybody else. Um, he was the first person, you know, to, to expose me and, and put me on the spot. So that was his, that was his moment. You know, I, I, you know, and I know people can say, oh, you, you're trying to get yourself over. And to, to a degree, I, I did and I was. That was the story. It made sense in, in the framework of what we were doing and who I was in real life. You know, keep in mind, I started in WCW as an on-camera character. I became the president of the company. I was still an on-camera character. Um, and this was an evolution of that. It was a... a, a a blurring of sorts of fantasy or fact and fiction and it worked. But in this case, you know, the timing of it all worked because it made Roddy smarter than everybody else. Obviously me turning was, it was a moment, probably not that big a deal in and of itself. But the fact that Roddy was a part of that story and is the one that exposed it, I think it made it, even more interesting for everybody including Roddy.
0: Let's fast forward. World War 3 is 6 days later. This is World War 3 1996 and Piper comes to the ring for a contract signing to face Hulk Hogan at Starcast or Starcade, sorry, force of habit. Um why did it make sense to do this contract signing on pay-per-view? You guys at this point just feel like it's another attraction and this is another way to sort of Build some interest and some intrigue, but why pay per view rather than Nitro?
1: No real reason, honestly. I, I I I think it was just again timing. It was Roddy's a big name. It made the pay-per-view. Keep in mind, you know, there was a there was a constant balancing act between giving away as much as we could give away on television without absolutely diluting the pay-per-views. And I know, you know, I've taken a lot of heat, probably some of it justifiable, some of it maybe not, depending on your worldview of the business of the wrestling business and the context that we were operating in at that time. But, you know, it was really hard to – give people as much as we wanted to get of them on television but you still had to focus on making those pay-per-views matter because we were charging people whatever it was 39.99 or 49.99 at the time um, and if those pay-per-views didn't seem to have value if there wasn't a perceived extra value there you ran the risk of people not ordering them so i think really if i if i had to guess and that's what this is right now i'm just being you know Honest as I can be about it, my guess is it's like, look, we got Roddy. Roddy, he's special. Him coming, it was a it was a buildup of a story. Um, let's deliver that story on pay per view instead of delivering on that story on television. And the other, you know, the other thing I'm going to throw in here, and I apologize, Conrad. I've had a lot of coffee this morning, which means I'm just going to ramble like a motherfucker. But the if you look at at least what we tried to do from a, a formulas per, formula perspective is I, I looked at television as four chapters to a book, excuse me, three chapters to a book. Really week one is the first chapter. It's setting up the story. Week two is advancing the chapter um, and, and, and creating the stakes and, and casting doubt and, Will your baby face achieve what he or she wants to achieve or won't they? You know, the third week is taking that all the way to the limit. And instead of paying it off, we would pay it off on a pay-per-view. So the end of the story, for the most part, not all the time, because you couldn't end every story on every pay-per-view. Sometimes you had to have arcs of a story carry over so you're you know, maybe your your A story or the most prominent story, you know, that blow off is, you know, on World War III, for example. But you may have another story, your B story, who's only in its, you know, mid-arc phase as opposed to coming to an end. But you had to do that. Otherwise, you'd be restarting all of your stories every single week. But for the most part, we tried to give a, give away as much as we possibly could on TV – but pay off the end of the stories, or at least the important ones, pretty consistently. Not all the time. Sometimes there were exceptions. Obviously, Bill Goldberg, Hulk Hogan being the most obvious one. But for the most part, the formula was to try to pay off the, the big stories, the important stories, the A stories on pay-per-view. Especially during that time when we were still trying to build our pay-per-view revenues.
0: You guys are doing a good job building this feud so far. And and the big debate that Piper's starting is, Hey, you're not the icon of wrestling. I'm just as big of an icon as you are. And they're going back and forth and you can see that the competitive juices are flowing and then you see Hogan start to bring up something that a lot of people probably thought was taboo because they knew that Vince McMahon and the WWF would talk about it. And eventually he just says, show them the hip. And and Hogan lifts Piper's kilt and shows off the scar where he had hip surgery, a hip replacement. And Hogan says something like, I don't usually pick on cripples and peg legs and really just piling it on here. Was there any sort of pushback in discussing... Because a hip replacement, a hip surgery like this is something that Vince McMahon and the WWF were going to talk about quite a bit. Are you guys just saying... Hey, we're going to embrace it and we're going to double down on it. How does that come to be?
1: It really was something that was worked out between Roddy and, and Hulk. I didn't have anything to do with that. I was certainly aware of it. I was in the middle of it. It came to me and I, you know, they asked me what I thought and it, because to me it was real and, and it was believable and, and it was, it, it made it even more of a personal issue. And that's the the one thing that I think is lacking, you know, when people – there's a reason that people are still listening. 100,000 people a week, you know, listen to you and I talking about, you know, things that occurred 20 and 25 years ago because that period of time during the Monday Night Wars, it was such a a peak period of interest in in our country, in pop culture, that it still resonates today. You and I are going to be doing October 27th, the NWO reunion. Because that period of time resonates so strongly today. And I think one of the reasons it does, in general, whether it's Stone Cold Steve Austin and Mr. McMahon, or you know, whether it's the NWO, it doesn't matter whose side of the war you want to look at. That period of time worked the way it worked, because the issues, there were personal issues between the principles of a story that were believable and intense. And I think that's one of the things that's lacking. Today. And when I say lacking, I think this is the business is involved, so it's no longer as important. It's probably a better way to say that. But I was talking to somebody last week, and I'm not going to drop his name because it would be a horseshit thing for me to do. But needless to say, it is one of the most senior executives in network television in, in the United States. And we talked about this very issue. And this person who would be very, very knowledgeable on the subject matter said to me, you know, when wrestling is at its absolute best is when there are personal issues that people really relate to. Wrestling is okay when it's just about, well, I'm better than you. No, I'm better than you. And it's, it's kind of pseudo pseudo competition. Now, this is somebody who's not really, well, not, not in the wrestling business, but obviously keenly aware of why certain things work and why certain things don't. So I think if 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 you take that analysis or you take that perspective and you look at that controversial, you know, exposing the hip, talking about a hip surgery, you know, was it tasteful? Yeah, I don't know. That's questionable. But was it real? Is it was it relatable? could people go, holy shit, I can't believe they did that. That would really get me hot calling me up, especially if if you knew of Roddy's character and his history and the kind of person that, you know, his character was. It just made it more believable.
0: No, No doubt about it. And you guys did a great job with it. You see Hogan starting to attack the hip and hitting it with a chair and, you know, they're spitting on him and spraying the NWO on the scar and uh of course piper you know won't stay down he grabs the house mic and says if that's the best you can do you're in trouble and then crawls to the back and the next time we see him is in charlotte december 9th and piper comes out to the bagpipes and cuts a promo saying that he's got six kids so he has to win this fight and you know quote unquote being a gimp didn't stop bo jackson and he just starts to talk about typical piper i don't take dives for anybody and i'm not for hulk hogan and then eventually uh, flair is introduced into the mix later in the show and he asked piper to come out and they're going back and forth and and they're doing this to firmly establish i'm sure here in charlotte the history that roddy piper had the Mid atlantic territory and that he's firmly a WCW guy, even though he's saying he's not a WCW guy. He's against the NWO, and that's what we need. But the show finishes by Piper coming out and sitting on a folding chair in the middle of the ring, and the NWO music's playing, and now here you come, and the fans are ready for this. They're soaking you with all sorts of trash
1: and,
0: I don't know, soda or beer or something here.
1: Tobacco spit. There's plenty of you know, people talk. <laughs> Ask me about this all the time. You know, I, somebody asked me the other day on on social media, might have been yesterday, you know, it was all that stuff that people threw in the ring. I mean, did you guys set that up or was that legitimate heat? And it was all legitimate, you know, Going, st- starting with the, the bash of the beach when Hulk Hogan turned. And then when people saw that, they went, okay, well, we're going to do that too. It's kind of like booing Roman Reigns in a way, you know, once it's monkey see, monkey do kind of thing. And, so then throwing stuff in a trash became kind of a Pavlovian or Pavlov's dog kind of response. But every once in a while when people would get, you know, they would throw rolls of quarters, you know, which if they hit you, they'd, they'd knock you the fuck out. I remember one time we were, I think we were in, I can't remember where somewhere on the East coast, might've been Uniondale. Um, somebody threw a D cell battery, you know, wow. that bounced right next to my feet. And I saw it coming from, distance so I it, it was coming from the cheap seats you know if that would have hit somebody in the head not only somebody in the ring you know we assume that risk to a degree but it could have easily hit somebody at ringside you know or three seats deep into ringside and and put somebody out a kid or an elderly person or even a perfectly healthy person for that matter but one of the nastiest things that people threw, and it didn't happen all the time But it did occasionally as these guys would sit there, you know, they'd have a a can of beer in one hand and they'd have an empty cup in the other. And of course they're chewing tobacco while they're drinking beer. Right. And they're spitting their tobacco spit in this empty cup. So by the time we'd come out at the end of the show, that cup's about half full or more. And I have been hit by more than one cup of tobacco spit in my career. And it is a nasty motherfucking moment. It's horrible. It's horrible. You just want to puke. I mean, there were times I go, "Fuck! I'd rather get hit in the head with a D-cell battery than a cup of tobacco spit." This
0: uh, this episode of Nitro in Charlotte involves Kevin Green, the local hometown football player, come to make the save from Hall and Nash and Ted DiBiase, who are all out there. And you're even mocking the hip, sort of limping away to mock him. Let's fast forward on the December twenty third Nitro. The show finishes with Hulk Hogan doing an interview saying that Roddy was coming out, but really it's you dressed in a kilt. (laughs) That
1: was so much fun. Chat me up. I mean, it was what it was. There's nothing really to talk about. It was me mocking, you know, Roddy in, in the most effective way that I possibly could and. You know, coming out in that skirt and l- with the bagpipe music, and it—it's on my personal highlight reel of fun things that I've ever done. It's not—it's n- not a top two or three, but it's in the top five for sure.
0: Let's talk about this, man. It's the go-home edition of Nitro, right before Starcade, and you're here in a kilt. The show's gonna go off the air. And, uh, the NWO is doing a number on him. Of course, after the show's off the air, Piper makes a comeback. The NWO runs off, but six days later, it's Starcade 1996. This is your WrestleMania. Starcade 96 was in Nashville. And the main event is Roddy Piper and Hulk Hogan. And I can't believe it really happened, but Piper beat Hogan clean in the middle with a sleeper hold. They go 15 minutes and 36 seconds, and it would be written Piper was as over in this match as anyone this side of Antonio Inoki would be. It was amazing to see the crowd wearing all NWO t-shirts, but yet cheering Piper and universally booing Hogan. The two did the best they could, which wasn't very good, but the match was built up so well and the two have so much charisma that they didn't really need to do anything. Piper looked noticeably older in the ring in this match than his last WWF stint. And he gave it a star and a half. The match is not going to be Jushin Liger and Rey Mysterio, which was, you know, a Starcade opening match. That's just nuts. I mean, that's the level of talent we've got on these shows when you've got Ultimo Dragons and Rey Mysterios and Jushin Ligers. And I mean, you've got so much talent here, but your two biggest stars and it's clear based on the crowd reaction are Piper and Hogan. What'd you think of the match and how highly debated was the finish of Piper winning, playing in the middle,
1: wasn't debated at all, and and I think that's this is a perfect illustration of the fact that you know the reality that existed more often than not backstage was so much different than the perception or the reporting that was done on the politics. And I'm not suggesting for a moment. That there weren't issues from time to time about finishes and who wanted to do what or not who wanted to do what, but how it was being done. That was generally the bigger issue. <clears throat> but, you know, the, the perception, Hogan never wanted to do a job for anybody. Well, that's not really true. It certainly he didn't use his. I mean, if he wanted to use his creative control that everybody likes to use as a, as a flaming baton whenever they want to try to you know, criticize WCW or criticize Hulk for that matter, or me in some some cases, um, Hulk was he was cool with it. You know, he was excited to do it. He wanted to build a story. He wanted to build an opponent. He wanted to build something that could make money, and continue. For a long period of time. So it made perfectly good sense with all of the steam and all the heat that we got on Roddy, you know, from, as you pointed out, you know, so, so clearly, um, you know, making fun of the hip and me making fun of him coming out, you know, in in my kilt and, you know, spraying NWO on his hip and all the stuff that just inflamed the personal issues and motivated Roddy's character. There was no other way to pay that off but to give Roddy the win there. And Hulk was 100% in to do it. In terms of it being a sleeper, that was Roddy's thing. That's, that's what Roddy wanted to do. There was, there was, it, it wasn't a compromise. It, it was whatever else anybody may have written about that you may ask me about following up on this question. It was Roddy's idea, and Hulk was fine with it.
0: When you guys go into this, you have an idea that, hey, we're going to do this here and we're going to do that at Super Brawl, I mean, you sort of had the long-term booking in place for Piper. Would that be fair to say?
1: We had a general idea, but I I also think it's fair to say that we were all willing to shift on the fly if something better came up. I mean, we had a general, I would say we penciled it in, for lack of a better way to say it. Um, We knew, for the most part, what we wanted to do and when, but there were times you know that we'd look at where what we wanted to do and when and go well, but what if we did that different what if we what if we shift on the fly or more probably more importantly wow we got a much better reaction on that you know monday night than we thought we would maybe we need to take advantage of that and maybe we you know we modify so that that did happen um, you know it's it's often characterized as you know disorganized and poor communication and nobody knew what they were doing and the, ins- the inmates were running the asylum. You know, people can, you know, contextualize it any way They, I guess they choose to, but we had a, especially, you know, 96, 97, we were pretty tight. You know, there was a lot of cooperation amongst everybody for the most part, there were moments, but for the most part, everybody was very happy to be on this high speed bullet train And there wasn't nearly as much political, um, maneuverings as people like to believe there was, but we stayed fluid in case somebody came up with a better idea.
0: Well, it is a, um, it is a great idea because it does good business here and it sets the stage for super brawl, especially with what you guys do the night after starcade, the very next night on nitro Piper shows up. Thanks the fans for the previous night and says, you saw my last fight. Of course, you and Hogan come out, start insulting him. Eventually, the NWO comes down. Here's the big beatdown, chair shots in the bad hip. He's stretchered out, leaves in an ambulance. And before they get rid of Piper, um, they give him to the Giant to choke slam. But Giant refuses, uh, and of course Hogan gets mad at Giant, slaps him in the face, and then Giant grabs Hogan. And now we've sort of spun off into another storyline. I thought this was excellently done. Whatever sort of heat or swag or momentum or hype or shine or whatever words you want to call it that Hogan lost the night before he gets back with the beat down the next night and this is classic heel Hogan stuff here is it not
1: it is it is and it, it's you know it's a perfect example of how it should work when it's working at its best I mean there's nothing wrong with that formula the heel gets beat you give people and this is you know there's certain formulas that existed, and maybe it's different today. I'm not in the business today. I don't run house shows today. I don't run pay-per-views today or, or stream pay-per-views. Um, so I'm, maybe I'm out of touch. But there are certain things you do in house shows that you wouldn't do on television. You know, the, the rule of thumb on a house show is your baby faces always go over. That's not true on television because on television you have to tell a different kind of story to get you to the pay per view. And oftentimes your heels have to go over so that your underdog babyface, who is on a journey to finally accomplish his or her goal, does so on a pay per view. So, heat generally, at least back when I was doing it, was a lot more consistent on television than it was on a pay per view. Just As a general rule, not a hundred percent, but as a general rule and one of the other kind of foundational truths, if you will, of, of good, you know, producing, um, technique, I guess, for lack of a better way to say it at this point, uh, is that if your heels are going to do the job on a pay-per-view so that people that bought that pay-per-view, much like in the house show formula, you know, someone drops $49.95 or whatever it was on a pay-per-view, you want them to feel satisfied when they leave as often as you can. Not always, as often as you can. You want to create the impression that that's probably more likely than not going to happen, which is what, motivates people to spend their money because they want to get that gratification of seeing their 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 hero uh, win or their heroine. But when that happens, you can't just leave your baby face dead, especially if you've got a baby face that you're drawing a lot of money with. You resurrect him. ASAP. You find a way to resurrect him and that this was a perfect illustration of that formula in play.
0: The February 3rd episode from 1997 on nitros where Hogan comes out, challenges Piper to a title match, and then later in the show, Piper comes out and he has his son with him. And he turns down the match saying it's time for him to go home and be a good father Well Hogan starts running him down in front of his son. And eventually Piper put his son Colton out of the ring and begins brawling with him and accepts the match. And we're ready for super brawl now. The next week on Nitro, though, Piper's here, but Hogan is appearing by split screen via satellite from Hollywood, California, and they're going back and forth here, which is, um, going to build to the following week, February 17th. Roddy Piper is live from Alcatraz. How great were these Alcatraz Roddy Piper promos? I need to hear you tell me about these.
1: This was Roddy's idea. He he wanted to do this so bad. I mean, it was he was so passionate. And, and again, I use the the term, you know, where there's like childlike enthusiasm or excitement. He was like a little kid when he talked about these and it didn't take much to sell me on the idea. Cause it was so different and so consistent with Roddy's character, you know, Roddy's character. I mean, he was like half crazy anyway, you know, the, in the first, you know, the beginning of the arc with, with Hulk and, and Terry, you know, Terry was making fun of his broken hip, right. Or his hip replacement. well, OK, we get checked that one. Now, what are we going to do? Oh, we're going to humiliate him in front of his kid. <laughs> I mean, what else can we do to intensify the personal issue that worked so well back in this era? And, you know, embarrassing somebody in front of their kid was probably as close to the bone as you could cut. And that's what we did. And that sent Roddy into a tailspin as a character. And he just wanted to lock himself up in Alcatraz to get his mind right for this match. And that was all Roddy. That was his idea. It was his contacts. He actually did a lot of the, the work that a producer would normally do, you know, with, I think it was uh, the department of natural resources, <clears throat> I think is who actually had control over um, Alcatraz at the time. Cause it's a tourist. So I think it's a national park. Um, but, Anyway, Roddy did a lot of the legwork. And of course our production team kind of took over from there and we sent a crew out and he just loved it. He had a ball doing that.
0: One of the very early podcasts from Neil Pruitt in his secrets of nitro uh, show talked about those vignettes. If you haven't already, you should go find those. And some of them don't necessarily hold up today, but at the time as a kid, I thought it was awesome. Let's get to super brawl. It is in San Francisco, the cow palace, Hulk Hogan would retain the world title here and he would pin Roddy Piper in ten minutes and fifty-two seconds. Uh, this is not necessarily a wrestling clinic, but it still had a lot of heat. You've also got Randy Savage being involved here. Uh it gets star and a quarter. Of the Starcade match and the Super Brawl match, which did you prefer and, and what did you think of the Super Brawl one?
1: I like the the Starcade match better because I think the look the it was the first time, you know, Hulk and Roddy in WCW. I mean, that's where you're going to have the most anticipation. The heat was certainly real, believable, intense, well done, well executed. The story, the build up. everything going into it was about as perfect as it could really have been for Starcade. Um, uh, returns are always less than, in my opinion, no matter what the outcome just because it's the second time we've seen these two guys now, not the first time, R- regardless of the quality of the match or even to, to a certain degree, you know, how we try to build the story, you know, beyond the first event. Um, for me personally, rematches, and I don't care if it's, you know, UFC or, or you know, a World Series or, or a Super Bowl or a wrestling match, you know, the rematches generally aren't quite as good for me.
0: Well, either way, it was, um, it, it was, it was a hell of a story because it's the first time I think that Hogan had ever actually pinned Roddy Piper in all their matches. So,
1: yeah, but, but, and, and that's true. And I'm not taking away from that point. Cause you're absolutely right. And your you know, your hardcore 10% of the audience who knew that was like, wow, I can't believe, you know, Hogan did a job for Piper. Piper did a job for Hogan. Wow. We're seeing that actually happen, but the vast majority of the audience didn't look at it that way uh, and didn't react that way. Then one of the other advantages we did have was the cow palace, you know, both Hogan and Piper had a tremendous, you know, legacy and, and a lot of history in the cow palace. So that, that worked for us really well. And the cow palace was just a cool venue. I mean, it was, eh, it was a rougher crowd, which I always liked for wrestling. I always liked a crowd that was, a little on the edgy side because you got better emotion from them. Provided you put on a decent show. Um, I always dug the cow palace and both, both Roddy and, and Hulk did as well.
0: Let's talk about the next time we see Piper and it's not a good segment. March 3rd on nitro is when he does a skit to build his team for uncensored. Meltzer was not kind about this. It's a 20 minute long angle where Piper is going to introduce his four man team for the uncensored three team cage match main event. And Piper is bringing out six men and he's asking the fans to sort of vote with a thumbs up, thumbs down routine. And Meltzer would say, to say the idea was a catastrophe would be putting it mildly. The shock was that the fans picked up on how bad it was with Piper and I don't know, man. It's hard really to talk about this without dumping on it. Piper allegedly wanted to do a solid for some of his, his old friends. And one of those includes John Tenta, who he wanted to try to help get a deal with WCW again, since you guys had stopped using him and he's here and the, the crowd's not really with it. And you've got some power plant guys. I Meltzer mean, would write that Piper sort of had enough leeway and quote unquote, creative control to really hang himself a little bit with this, this show, this is not what they expected. And it's not what anyone hoped for. What What do you remember about him scouting his uncensored team and just what a disaster the segment became?
1: It was a disaster. And let me make one thing really clear. <clears throat> Roddy Piper did not have creative control in his contract. Now, maybe what Dave was implying there is because he was a, you know, seasoned veteran and one of the, you know, top guys on the roster that he had a lot of influence i i can't get into dave's head but i do want to make it clear that roddy piper did not have creative control in this contract <clears throat> that being said yeah i mean it was a disaster and it's you know one of those things where you you try something and it, and it, it 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 didn't make sense on paper um <clears throat> you know i don't want to say negative about anybody at this point that was involved in this but um, sometimes it doesn't make sense on paper and it makes even less sense when you see it. And this was one of those cases. It just, there was no, it was a miss, no other way to say it. And I'll have to take responsibility for it. Cause I let it happen.
0: Yeah. The, um, the boxer, uh, is going to be named Craig. The kickboxer is uh, named Layton. I mean, it's, it's an interesting, Team concept, I guess. Uh, the the other, of course, is Tinta. Lots of people sort of look back at this segment and say, "Hey, was that Bill Goldberg?" Set the record straight.
1: I, 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 I mean, I mean, I have to go back and look at the segment. Honestly, I can't. I couldn't tell you. It was who Bill Goldberg? One of the
0: guys that Piper was working out. One of the guys. No, 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 no.
1: There was a guy. And I can't remember, and it might have been Craig, it was his first name, but there was a guy. He was a real, um, he was dark haired guy, real broad shoulders, big, thick chest, probably about six foot tall. It was a guy that Piper traveled with. I mean, the guy, you know, he was with Piper all the time when Piper was in LA making the rounds, you know, with movie producers or television studios, whatever. This guy was, he was kind of like Piper's Jimmy Hart, if you will, if that makes sense to you. Um, and Roddy really, really liked him. And the guy was, you know, he worked out hard in the, uh, training wherever he was training in Portland and Roddy really wanted to try to give him a shot. That, that part is true. Um, probably not one of Roddy's better ideas or mine for letting it happen.
0: Right. I think the guy you're talking about is Leighton Morse, uh, who, who was, I believe his real life friend and, uh, there you
1: go that's right you're right you're right it was latent. either way quiet, no. quiet guy nice guy you know but just didn't have that why not fucking use wrestlers yeah <laughs> where the fuck were you when i needed you oh i really
0: <laughs> i really appreciate just uh yeah uh, either way, the, the honesty sometimes is, uh, what gets me on this show where you're just like, uh, I don't know. Uh, March 10th, uh, Oakland is interviewing Roddy Piper and his three buddies and, uh, Flair's music hits and he comes out with Steve and Deborah McMichael and Arn Anderson and, um, Flair's cutting a promo saying, you know, we've offered you our services before And now it looks like there's going to be a bit of a pivot instead of using these, these group of guys that Piper has assembled, it's (laughs) a group of
1: guys. (laughs) You're so kind.
0: It's going to be (laughs) the horseman, uh, along with him. Chat me up. Why did you guys immediately realize after that segment? Um, this was a fucking bad idea.
1: Yeah. Yep. again you know sometimes things look great it sounds great on paper you know history between you know piper and and um and flair you know we thought we could really bank on that
0: Yeah, Yeah. this same promo where piper's out here and, and accepting the help from the horseman he can't help but just sort of go all over the place he he rips on howard stern uh he's he's mentioning Jim Ross by name, sort of burying him because JR. on commentary has been calling WCW, the, the seniors tour and the over 40 promotion, and you know, that there aren't any wrestlers in the WWF who just have one hip. So he's going on and on and on, and he can't help, but talk about, you know, other WC, WWF talent, whether it's gold dust or whoever. And he's name dropping all those guys. And and I do find age to be a funny thing. And I feel like we talk about this all the time, but it is sort of interesting that Jr. And obviously he's pushing the youth movement and he's doing what he's told and blah, blah, blah. But Piper here, I think is like 45 and Goldust and Kurt Angle right now are 49. Big Show and R-Truth are 46. Shelton Benjamin's 43. I don't think anybody thinks of those guys as being old, but here the WWF narrative was pushed so hard that even I sort of thought Piper was older than he really was.
1: Hypocrisy is a wonderful thing in politics, you know, in wrestling. You know, it's, it's really easy to use whatever it is you feel like you need to use to gain an advantage uh, over your opponent or over your competitor or whatever the case may be, but it's pure hypocrisy. Um, it was then – And it is now, you know, it still is Um, by, by, by the standards back then when WWE was trying so desperately to gain an upper hand and trying so hard and consistently to paint the picture that, you know, the WCW top talent that by the way was stomping a fucking mud hole in them just for the record, but they were trying so desperately because they didn't have the creative tools to do it. They didn't know how to overcome it creatively or tactically or strategically, at least not at that time. So the only thing that they could do was frame everybody as old and washed up and and, and burned out and um, therefore not worthy of the audience's attention. Unfortunately, it didn't work. Um, well, fortunately for us and unfortunately for them, it wasn't until they adopted <laughs> the, the same kind of formula that we were using that they were able to turn things around for themselves. But it had nothing to do with the age of our talent. Um, and it was unfortunate, you know, that Jim was putting in, put in the position he was in. I know he's just doing his job and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, if, if the same thing were to have, were to occur today, um, and people were to make fun of Jim Ross for whatever obvious things that are there, his age or whatever, um, you know, people would get hot about it. But back then it was like, oh, okay, well we're WWF fans. So we'll buy into it.
0: Let's get to uncensored. Team NWO, which is Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, the Macho Man, and Hulk Hogan are going to beat Team Piper, which is Benoit, Roddy Piper, Jeff Jarrett, and Steve McMichael, and Team WCW, which is the Giant, Scott Steiner, and Lex Luger. So everything's changed here. Two weeks prior, we were told that these are Piper's friends and they're going to be here and have his back no matter what. They're not here. Uh, Six days prior to this, we were told that this is You know, the selling point of the pay-per-view is that we've got Flair and Piper back together again, side by side. After all these years, Flair's not here and there's no real explanation. Rick Steiner is injured, but there's not one WCW wrestler. Who's going to step up and take his spot. And as if that wasn't enough, Dennis Rodman's here. And they're going to take forever to have Hogan get in the ring, just to get more photo ops and more time with those two guys together. And Meltzer would say, this is one of those booked on acid main events. And he
1: booked on acid. Is that what he said? Yeah.
0: He runs down exactly why it wasn't that great and how some of it didn't make a lot of logic and he gives it one star uncensored man. It was just snake bit from the, from the word go. Was it not?
1: It was. And part of it I want to be careful here because I know how people react to shit like this. It wasn't by design. I'm not I'm not trying to imply that we booked it to be horrible. <laughs> because if, if we did, we did a great job. <laughs> it, it 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 was horrible. But the idea for uncensored was more about the underlying tone of anarchy and NWO taking over and doing everything as different as, as we possibly could so that it didn't feel like another pay-per-view. Now I I missed the mark and, and this one is on me. It's not, it's not anybody else sold out was really my, my concept Uh, It was an added pay-per-view. The idea was to begin the NWO having not only, you know, eventually having Nitro, but also having their own pay-per-views so we could have our own wars and not have to try to fictionalize them. Um, At least have more of a believability war between NWO and WCW. But the idea—I mean, it's from the from the very beginning when when you watch the open. I think wh- where was sold out? Was that the one that was in Des Moines or? Oh, this is uncensored. Or uncensored. I'm sorry, I got the two mixed up. I'm so sorry. I thought we were talking about sold out. Oh, uncensored. Well, I'm not going to take as much of a hit on uncensored. I'll I'll bite the bullet on sold out. But uncensored was more of a cooperative fuck up. <laughs>
0: oh my gosh on the march 31st nitro oakland is interviewing rick flair piper's music plays down he comes and he begins by saying the rumor isn't true and that flair's girlfriend called his waterbed the dead sea i don't, <laughs> I don't know why but that's fun um he's also sort of teasing some stories behind the scenes, that being flair. When he says that he put Mark Lewin to sleep in 93 and the nasty boys to sleep in 93, and now he's put Hogan to sleep twice and flair and Hogan are saying that or flair and Piper are saying they're going to stand by each other's side forever. They hug and leave the ring together. And Shivani of course calls it like the greatest moment in the history of wrestling or some shit. And the next week they're right here in Huntsville, Alabama. And the fans are chanting for Piper when Flair's cutting a promo. And, uh, he's talking about how Kevin Green is going to join him, And Piper has been receptive and we're building towards a six man on April 14th. Oakland interviews, Flair, Kevin Green, and Roddy Piper. And they're challenging the NWO. And, uh, it's a, it's another wild off the train tracks promo from Roddy Piper and, we start to establish that this is going to happen. The NWO versus flair Piper and Kevin green. And we keep it going, uh, the next week on April 21st and then the 28th. And we're building towards the eventual six man. And this six man has been highly debated because before Piper passed away, there was a story that was shared about what happened after the show. And we're going to get to that. But at this point, once the Hogan, Feud seems to be shifting now to an NWO feud. You've got a free Hogan up to go do stuff with Piper. Why, in your opinion, does it make sense to put him with Piper or put him with Flair, but then also introduce a football player into the mix? It feels like that may complicate the situation when you've got obviously Rick Flair, one of the greatest of all time. Maybe Piper has lost a step or two Flair's up there in age. And now you put a football player in there. What's the creative behind it? What's the thought process?
1: Yeah, there were two things there. You know, one is creative; the other is promotional. Um, look, you, you, you know, Rick. Rick has always liked to align himself with athletes. Whether it's NFL athletes or, you know, I mean, he, he, he petitioned hard to bring Charles Barkley into WCW to do some things. And, he, you know, he's always loved to align himself with athletes. That's just his, his nature. It's what he's done, it's his go to, as we've talked about before. We've all, we all have things that we've done in the past that have worked. So we tend to kind of go back and repeat the process. And Rick was excited about Kevin Green. I was excited about Kevin Green. I was pretty good friends with Kevin and his wife. Kevin was a very – he was a Pro Bowl uh, linebacker. I mean he was, he was at the peak of his NFL game. Um, he was a big deal in Charlotte. There was natural connective tissue, um, promotionally speaking, between Flair and Kevin Green and, and Roddy Piper. Uh, so there was a lot of, again, reasons on paper why it made sense. But you're absolutely right, you know, and I wasn't, wasn't as sensitive to this issue then as I would be now, but, you know, Ric Flair can make anybody look good, but he's in a six man. Right. Ric Flair can't carry a six man.
0: Right.
1: You know, Roddy was very limited. We all knew that. We all saw that. Um, the audience knew that he wasn't, he was going to be able to go out and brawl he could create emotion. He could do a lot of things better than anybody else that could do, you know, five-star Dave Meltzer, you know, matches all day long. Oh, no. Um, but he – but, but, you know, he couldn't, you know, perform at a real high level athletically. And that was an issue. In, a, in, in hindsight, yeah, that was a mistake. Should have been more consideration for that.
0: The April 28th Nitro has a line I'll never forget. Flair's cutting a promo, and I guess the six-man we should remind everybody that they're trying to set up is Hall Nash and Six for the NWO. But he's mocking Six, and he says, I've had more world titles than you've had pieces of ass in your lifetime. <laughs> and,
1: and, we're, and we're building. Oh, God, I miss him. I just miss him. And I guarantee you that came off the top of his head. Of course.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Nobody wrote that down and handed a sheet of paper. No doubt about it. Uh as the air as that show goes off the air, um, they're putting the beat down on on Flair. Uh Flair tackles six and he's giving Hall and Nash low blows. Then he puts a figure four on six, but then Hall and Nash just starts stomping him. And Piper's just standing there as this is all going on, and Flair's screaming for help. And then as the show's going off the air, Piper's running down and whipping Nash with a belt. And I, I guess we should just go down that road for a minute because these guys are going to have a personal issue as they build towards slamboree. And I'm sure we'll talk about what happened afterwards in a moment, but it even makes the newsletter back then. And I didn't realize this until I did a little research this week that Piper wanted to do a live debate with Kevin Nash, but was talked out of it. Was there an issue as far as, you know, with maybe it's professional and sort of like him and Hogan, where they're just trying to outdo each other. Did you know of any sort of, Issue sort of bubbling under the surface with Kevin Nash and Roddy Piper before slamboree.
1: Yeah. I mean, it looks Scott and Kevin had a reputation before they got to WCW. It, it wasn't like they came into WCW as choir boys with stellar reputations behind the scenes. They, they came with a lot of baggage. Um, by this time, when we were on a roll, or Nitro was on a roll, and NWO was clearly on a roll, I think their tendency to make sure everybody backstage knew who they were um, was probably exacerbated to a certain degree by their history and their 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 reputations. But yeah, they were they were difficult to be around, and Piper resented it. There was a there was a clear culture clash um between the two of them and it it escalated for a period of time
0: yeah and it just keeps building the may 12th nitro we've got promos going back and forth piper is saying yeah i am a dinosaur i'm a tyrannosaurus rex uh waltman is asking flair what his wife does first thing in the morning when rick's on the road then he answers his own question she leaves my hotel room so they're going back and forth in a big way And later in the show, we see Nash and Six fleeing Piper's locker room and Piper writhing in pain. And now we get to Slamboree. This is the six man that everybody's been talking about for a long time. On one side, Flair, Piper, and Kevin Green. On the other, Hall, Nash, and Six. They go 17 minutes and 20 seconds. Meltzer would give it two and a half stars. And he would say that Flair's left shoulder and arm were clearly... Not at a hundred percent. He's coming off rotator cuff surgery at the end of the year. And he would even remark that Kevin Green didn't get nearly the pop you would think for a local sports hero, but that Piper and Flair's pop more than made up for it. What'd you think of the match? Um the pop is deafening for a clean finish here. Flair puts Hall in a figure four. Those are the legal men. Piper puts Nash in a sleeper. And Kevin green power slams six and with all three guys down, Nick Patrick counts hall shoulders down and the crowd goes banana as Pat Patterson would say, why was there an issue with the match after the fact? And before you answer that, I guess you should say, what'd you think of the match? Because clearly it got over with this live crowd in a big way.
1: Yeah. As you described it, you know, I'm, I'm starting to recall the match and, and the reaction to it. And again, you know, Dave Meltzer has a tendency to rate or analyze or appreciate matches based on his own personal opinion and and what he enjoys watching, and that's fine. You know, I, as much as I bust Dave Meltzer's balls, I don't really care or value his opinion. Um, he's welcome to it. I, I have a different view of how great matches are or aren't, and that's generally relative to an audience's reaction to it, not Dave Meltzer's. In this case, the audience reaction was outstanding. Yep. So I thought the match was outstanding. Sure. And the buildup was outstanding. And I thought that, you know, Kevin and, and Roddy, you know, more than made up for what they didn't bring to the ring in terms of five star, um, Dave Meltzer type matches. They were able to make up for with character story. So, and, and Rick, obviously, Rick was leading all of that. So for me, it was, you know, Dave gave it a two and a half stars based on the reaction to the audience. I'd give it a five star. It just depends on what you value.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the actual fallout. Here's what Meltzer wrote about it at the time. And, and this is sort of the same narrative that we hear over and over and over. The early part of the match consisted of Flair and Hall brawling in a corner. By the way, this is from the June 16th Observer. They're recapping Flair and Piper wrestling Hall and Nash in a non-title match. Um, Nash claims that Piper wasn't doing what they agreed on doing, although he also didn't really want to appear to sell much for Piper directly from the Observer here. The match storyline was that Piper would work and sell the match leading to Flair's hot tag. However, Piper looked horrible. And even with the star power, the match was killed and well into the negative stars, Piper also called for the finish way early, about six minutes into a match scheduled for 12 minutes, which meant the post-match brawl to end the show literally lasted forever. After the show went off the air, it was Hogan and Savage, not Hall and Nash who remained in the ring to brawl with flair and Piper and for flair and piper to clean house and piper ended up in the ring holding the wcw heavyweight tag team and cruiserweight belts up in the air as flair finished the fight after the show nash went to piper's private dressing room and knocked on the door very hard apparently there's been heat between um craig malley piper's bodyguard and nash
1: no see that it was craig it was Craig going back to the, the big guy that we were talking about. Piper's guy at, uh, yeah, it was Craig Malley. Cause that, that was his name.
0: Okay. So he opens the door Nash, basically pie faces Piper. And then Piper tries to kick Nash's bad knee before Malley and Ric Flair, who were there with Piper, try to act as peacemakers and quickly break it up before anything serious could take place. But allegedly the heat has been left unresolved and who reported this this is directly from the observer
1: okay it's directly from a sewer i was there i saw it kevin didn't go pounding on roddy's door i was in the locker room um with nash and hall and hogan sure who else might have been there. There might have been another person or two in the room. It was a smaller room. Roddy came to Nash's room, not the other way around. And there was no knock on the door. He just blew in and they got into a promo together. And when I say a promo, I mean, they were into a heated argument together and it almost came to blows, but it did not come to blows. Nobody pie faced anybody. Nobody tried to take out anybody's knee. That is such horse shit. It's right up there with Mabel was going to be the third man. I was there. This is not, do I recall it? I'm not really sure. I'm not, I'm not really sure. Somebody told me something of that nature. I was fucking there. Roddy came in. He was hot. They had had heat. They weren't happy with the match. There was a lot of shit going back and forth. They'd been having heat. They, they had issues leading up to this, but nobody laid hands on anybody. I was standing two feet away. But
0: you're saying Nash didn't beat
1: on the door? No. I, I was – no. I'm, I'm saying Roddy came into Nash's locker room, not the other way around. Okay.
0: Well, yeah, that's a version nobody's heard for sure.
1: Uh, I, I do want to. Mention- well, the only version they've heard is the horse shit that Meltzer puts out. I don't know where. I mean, that that story. And again, I don't usually get quite as animated when it's things that I don't have immediate firsthand knowledge of and recollection of. But this is one of those cases where, motherfucker, I was standing there and I'm thinking to myself and I remember this because I'm thinking if this gets, you know, I mean, I've. I've been around fights enough to know when it's just posturing and when everybody's, you know, drawing a line in the sand and when somebody's really going to throw a punch. There's a difference. And I've seen enough of it in my life to know when it's really going to happen and when it's going to get real close to it. And it's a very fine fucking line, but I've seen it a million times. And I'm thinking to myself, we're walking right up to that line. And I was, I was concerned. That it was gonna get physical and with all of those guys, you know, I mean, with those guys in that small little room, it would have gotten ugly to try to pull it apart. And and of everybody in that room, I would have probably come out you know, the worst. But it nothing happened. It got ugly verbally. Things were said that I'm not gonna repeat because Roddy's not here to defend himself, but nobody laid hands on anybody.
0: I do want to ask you about the, the buildup to the match here, because allegedly that's where a lot of the heat comes from. It was reported in the observer that neither Piper nor flair wanted six in the match feeling. He wasn't a big enough star. And they also didn't want, and Kevin green didn't want to turn on flair, which the company had allegedly suggested. And originally Piper at some point says, Hey, we're not losing, which was the original plan. And he he didn't mind working singles matches with six, but he just did not want to lose this match. And, uh, and the NWO eventually comes around and agrees uh, through the course of back and forth. This is all from the observer saying that we'll do the job, but we're not going to have six do it because that's predictable. Instead, we'll have all three basically do the job at the same time to show that we're the more professional of the two teams. Talk to me about all the creative back and forth leading to this match.
1: Conrad, I, and I don't blame you for asking the question because it was reported. You're you're asking me something that's been out there in, in the dirt sheet universe, and I don't blame you for doing that. But I hope our listeners understand the difference for me saying I don't recall because I can't recall shit that somebody made up. I can't comment on the the reporting or lack thereof – the fabrication of, of second and third hand stories, because I don't know that they're true, that it didn't exist. You know, I wasn't, you know, you'd have to talk to Rick, you know, I I didn't sit in the room with these guys and lay out a match. That wasn't my role, by the way, never was my role. Um, my role was to make sure that the stories were written, that we knew where the direction we were going, the town, the tenor, there was a lot of things I did do, but here I want to make this abundantly fucking clear what I never did because I, I didn't then, nor do I now have the type of experience required to lay out a match. Just don't. And I certainly didn't have it back then. So I didn't do it. That's what we had agents for that's th- th- our producers as they're called now. So for me to try to comment and tell you the stories about the back and forth and the who said what about who, when number one, I don't know that any of it's true. Just like Dave Meltzer's was reporting of the story that had a completely back ass words with regard to Kevin Nash pounding on Piper's door and pie facing him and all that kind of horse shit that is absolutely 100% wrong. It, it, I can't, I I just can't do an adequate job trying to comment on what may or may not have been said when it was probably reported incorrectly anyway. It it just, none of it makes sense to me. I'm not saying that there weren't issues. Clearly there were no doubt about it. Um, There was a lot of issues between those guys. The chemistry was horrible. Roddy Piper did have issues about who he did jobs to and with and how. I'm not going to deny that. You know, neither would Roddy if he was standing here, because he was a very proud guy and had a very clear idea of who his character was and who his character wasn't and how his character could survive for as long as it possibly could. And there was just general chemistry issues between those six guys. You know, going to you know, Meltzer's comment, and you know, here's one thing I, I, I will say I think is bullshit. I don't know hundred percent because I wasn't, you know, in the room laying out the match. Um, the in-ring match, but Kevin Green never had issues about doing anything. He was the easiest guy in the world to work with. I mean, he may have said something like, wow, you know, what's it going to be like in Charlotte? You know, Rick and I aren't going to be able to hang out together, but to Kevin Green come to me and say, I don't want to do it. I don't want to turn on Rick Flair. That never happened. So, yeah, there, that's a, that's the a best I can do on commenting on that scenario that Dave Meltzer reported.
0: Was there any concern coming out of this Slamboree match that you might not be able to do the tag match that you were hoping for where Flair and Piper were challenging Hall and Nash for the WCW titles? Was there any concern that, hey, I don't know if it's a good idea if we put everybody in the same ring again?
1: No, th- it wasn't. I've always, look, Kevin is a friend of mine, so is Scott. And there were times when Kevin would, we'd have so much heat between us and he will tell you this, he would come to my door and motherfuck me and want to choke me to death. And, and I would, you know, stand my ground and fight right back with him verbally, (laughs) not physically. Want to make that really clear. Um, and then the next day we would go, okay, like, yeah, we're both out of line. Let's move on. It, when it came, you know, Ric Flair and I, we talked about this on the Ric Flair show a couple of weeks ago. There were times when I know Ric Flair wanted to to dig an eye out of my skull and, and beat me half to death on a personal basis. But I also knew that the minute I got into the ring with Ric Flair, he was going to be a pro and I could give. Whatever I needed to give to Rick to to make sure that the the match came off as good as it could under the circumstances, me being a non-wrestler, I had no concerns ever about Ric Flair being a professional once once the bell rang. You know, backstage, away from the building, yeah, that's a different story. But once these guys were in the ring, I wasn't concerned about Flair or Piper or Hall or Nash once the bell rang. The challenge was everything that happened before the bell rang and after.
0: Let's talk about the match, uh, from great American bash, Hull and Nash, get the win, they retain over flair and Piper and Meltzer would report that the original plan for Piper and flair to turn on each other was changed because the company felt too many people knew about it. In other words, they're back to that mentality that they'd rather surprise 1% of the people the new angles they believe they formulate are the best thing for the other 99% when it comes to business. Do you remember that angle possibly being changed that maybe they wouldn't turn on each other and then feud and instead just going with this finish?
1: The, the finish may have been changed, but not because 1% of the people found out about it. Um, there could have been any number of reasons why the, the, the finish was changed I don't think, to my recollection, it was anything other than trying to continue the story or trying to continue the relationship or building to a better opportunity than what we had laid out on paper. A lot of times you'd lay something on paper. You think it's going to be great as you get closer to it. As I said earlier, you know, you, you can be faced with situations where, wow, this is really working better than we thought. You know, let's let's go with this idea instead. or Conversely, wow, we really thought this was going to make a lot of sense, but we're not getting the reaction we were hoping to get, and maybe we need to rethink it. That was far more likely the case than, you know, a handful of people found out about it first.
0: The story you go with here in the match is Flair chases six to the back and was never heard from again, and that leaves Piper in a two-on-one situation the commentators would speculate that perhaps Flair was jumped by the NWO when they went backstage, but there's no real explanation. And when we see Piper discuss it on Nitro, you know, he's upset with Flair and and sort of running him down a little bit, saying, hey, you know why Flair uh, has two girlfriends? Well, it's so they have somebody to talk to after he falls asleep. And so they just keep going back and forth for a few weeks here, and, and eventually Flair defends himself and says that you know, it was in the best interest of the team that they make sure there's no interference. And then of course the finish came, but that leads to you guys were doing some interesting stuff here, like real audio. You could stream a show and hear the play by play. And one of the times you did that was June 28th at the forum in LA. And you see Rick and Piper square off against each other. After all this time teaming with him, but against maybe guys he doesn't really enjoy working with, Piper had to be loving being back in there against Rick, right?
1: Yep. Yep. That was the thing. I mean, they it's kind of like Flair and Hogan. You know, it's one of the reasons, you know, if it wasn't for Rick Flair, there would have been no Hogan in WCW. Because Hogan knew, as we've talked about before, Hogan just knew, no matter what, that once the bell rang, magic was going to happen at least to the the greatest extent it possibly could Piper and flair had that same chemistry,
0: a great promo here on the July 7th, nitro Flair's doing an interview with a mannequin and he's saying, Hey, this is, uh, just another stiff that I've carried just like Piper and 200 other guys. I've, uh, carried more guys than there are apples in Washington. And that takes us to the bash at the beach. Piper gets the win over flair here. 13 minutes, 26 seconds. It got three and a half stars in the observer. Meltzer would say, even though flair played heel, nobody was booing him, but it wasn't like anyone booed Piper either. Surprisingly good match and easily the best match Piper has had since he come back, although that can be attributed to flair as well, uh, three and a quarter stars. And after this match, Piper's gone until September. What'd you think of the match? And why was it time for Piper to be off TV for a bit after this?
1: <laughs> There was no real reason other than um, his contract, you know, the limited number of days that he had in timing. Additionally, I, with guys like Piper, Flair, Hogan, um, probably Flair didn't fall into this category quite as much, and that's not for any other reason than he was such a utility player, and it was just too easy to, to use flair in so many different ways. But uh, a lot of the guys that I mean, of flair, Hogan, Savage, Piper, if they didn't feel special, they weren't. And you, uh, a firm believer then as I am to this day, because I'm more convinced now of of what I'm about to say than I ever have been. Um, if you want to make people feel special, you have to treat them special as, as characters. If you see them every week on television, eh, you become numb to them. There's only so much you can do with them, especially guys who are somewhat limited in the types of things that they can do or limited by their characters. You know, Dave brought up something in your, your, your quote from whatever it is he, he wrote about, even though Flair was playing the heel, well, Flair always wanted to play the heel. And guess what? One of the challenges with Ric Flair has been, or was for me, is Rick and Rick didn't want to be a baby face. Talk to him about that. Ask him someday when you're sitting around, you know, having dinner, how he felt about being a baby face. He hated being a baby face. He would much rather be the heel, get the heat, get beat, come back next week and do it again. Because he was in control. Heels are more or less in control of storylines like that. They're always going to, they can, they have much more latitude. It's a lot easier for heels to get over than it is for baby, baby faces. And it was particularly true during the NWO period. But that's always been the challenge with Rick is if you try to put him in a role as a baby, as a heel, people would cheer the fuck out of him because he's Ric Flair. I used to joke, and it's a sick joke, and I don't mean it, obviously, literally, but um, he, he could literally walk to the ring setting puppies on fire with kerosene and stomping the fire out, and people would still cheer him because he's Ric Flair. And the same was true with Roddy. That's what happens when you have guys like Roddy and the way Ric Flair was who have been around. For, you know, Try to make The Undertaker a heel right now and see how that works. You know, I mean, you just try to make stingy heel right now and see how that works. You know, it's just once a talent has been around so long and we're talking about decades and decades and decades and, and people have put them up on a certain kind of pedestal like they did Rick even back in the 90s. Now, you know, mid 90s, late 90s, Rick was already on that pedestal in, in terms of the, the fans opinion of him. Yeah, you could put him in a role as a heel. And it would be really effective because Rick was Rick and Rick could do amazing shit in the ring. And he could be a chicken shit. He could get beat and come back and be just as good next week as he was the week before. But if you tried to put him over as a baby face, excuse me, if I had that the other way around. if you If you put him in that role, he could be effective in the ring doing everything that I said. But you still didn't get the heel reaction out of him. You just can't. You couldn't then. You certainly couldn't now. You try to make a Ric Flair heel. He could do it. He'll do exactly what he needs to do in the ring. He'll get, he'll get the baby face over in the ring, but guess who's probably going to get the bigger pop. (laughs) That's just the way it is.
0: The September 8th, Nitro, Gene Oakland would introduce the new chairman of the executive committee, Piper's music plays, and the announcers mark out. Here he is. And he says, I've been the president of the WWF and the fans booed. And now he says, I'm the chairman of the board. And one of the acts that he's going to do very quickly is he's going to, um, be taking Luger and page out of the cage at fall brawl because their heads ain't square. And instead he puts all the four horsemen in the match and says, that's an order on the September 21st nitro. Oakland is interviewing Piper mid ring. And he says, Hey, I'm here to straighten out some things. And he talks about how WCW wants to ban cage matches as a result of what happened at war games, of course, where Kurt slammed Flair's head in the cage. But he says, despite that, I'm going to face Hogan in a cage match at Halloween Havoc. It'll be the very first Roddy Piper Hulk Hogan match in history. And it will be the last because I'll be finishing his career. And so now we've, we've made him commissioner, but he's right back into a match just a couple of weeks later. Chat me up. Why does this make sense?
1: just trying to give him more authority trying to give him more gravity as a character trying to add another layer another dimension increase the stakes now that he's you know in control uh presumably and has some stroke presumably that's really all it was there's no more to it than that
0: they do a, a lot of different angles here building to halloween havoc including where uh, a million things do run-ins and you know all their wigs are removed and then they're destroyed and Of course, one turns out to be the real sting, and he cleans house. Let's get to Halloween Havoc. Uh, Age in the cage is what JR would (laughs) joke that this was. Roddy Piper and Hulk Hogan in a non-title cage match. And I guess the giveaway is at Starrcade, when Piper won, you knew it was a non-title. And here, when they announce this non-title again, you sort of have an inclination, and you would be correct. Piper gets the win, 13 minutes and 37 seconds, tons of stings come out uh, all to no reaction. Hogan is uh, bleeding at one point. You've got multiple leg drops. They're trying a little bit of everything. Uh, there's a fan who gets involved and in, um, like out of the crowd, it gets a dud rating and this is not the best looking cage or certainly the best looking performance for either of these guys. What'd you think of this? Pretty bad. Halloween Havoc 1997.
1: Yeah, it was bad. It was disappointing. And I, I know I talk about it a lot all the time. I just I think cage matches gimmick matches in general, but a, a particularly cage matches, I just think they're so tired and dated. You know, there's never and we didn't do it. You know, we didn't do it either. We didn't do a good job building up to it. There was no real reason to have that cage match. It wasn't the end of a, you know, incredibly intense story between two guys who have been doing battle for weeks or better yet months and having someone say the only way this is ever going to end once and for all is inside of a steel cage. So the cage can actually become a character in the story as opposed to a prop. And, and that's what this was. That's what most cage matches that I've I've seen before this and after this are. I haven't seen a good cage match in probably 30 years. And I'm talking about a reason for the cage match. I'm not talking about people doing spectacular athletic dramatic things in a cage match. We all know Helena sells done that a bunch of times. And Helena sells a little bit different because of the the buildup that it has every year. But generally speaking, cage matches are just there because we don't really have a good story. And, and people believe, because cage matches used to represent the end of an intense arc between two characters, or two, two, two combatants in this case, that, it would, that it's going to mean something, but it rarely ever does. Well, what
0: did mean something is the amount of money that you guys drug in with this. I feel like that gets... Sort of glossed over because the main event was sort of blah. But it does a company record for buys and gross revenue over 300,000 buys on 1.1 buy rate, 3.52 million bucks here. And the next night on Nitro, they announced that Piper has suffered nerve damage and will uh, be out of action for a while. And in reality, he's just filming Walker, Texas Ranger. And I think what's funny is Meltzer would report that the part was actually written for Hulk Hogan to play. And it's the part of a pro wrestler nearing retirement. Uh, Piper's going to return at Sold Out in January of '98 just to do a promo and announce that Hogan and Sting will square off at Super Brawl in San Francisco at the Cow Palace. He's back on TV on March 23rd and he wrestles Randy Savage on the show, but they only go about three and a half minutes before the NWO interferes. And the next week, we start to lay the groundwork. Uh, you see Piper come out and announce that Kevin Nash and a partner who couldn't be Hulk Hogan are going to face sting and Lex Luger later in the night. And, um, eventually we build towards spring stampede, which is Hulk Hogan and Kevin Nash. And they're going to beat Roddy Piper and the giant here in a baseball bat on a pole match. And this is long before Vince Russo was there, by the way, 13 minutes, 23 seconds. It gets a star and a half a baseball bat and a pole match. Now you were telling us recently how much you enjoy gimmick matches.
1: No, and it, you, <laughs> you just, you just helped me <clears throat> explain why I hate the fucking things as much as I do. Yes. I just hate gimmick matches. I just do. I don't know what else to say. Yeah. And I think these examples you're giving me, bad cage matches that don't really mean anything because they don't really have any backstory to make them mean anything. A fucking baseball bat on a, bat on a pole match. You know, how about a pickle on a cat's ass match? I mean, oh my God. It just, there's, it's nonsensical. Yes, I did it. And I have to take responsibility for it. It made me a better person. There you go.
0: We start to set the stage after this, the next night on Nitro, where you've got um, a Hogan-Randy Savage match, and Piper is saying no one is allowed to interfere and you know really laying out consequences. So, of course, Bret Hart runs in, hits Nash with the title belt, pulls Hogan on top of Savage, and uh, Nick Patrick is revived, counts the, uh, the the pinfall, and now there's a title change here. And at this point, Piper runs out and couldn't understand what happened. And then Hart decks Piper. And it would be written in the Observer that Piper was apparently supposed to say, Why, Brett, why, as his cue before Hart punches him, but he forgets the line as they're running off uh, air here. Chat me up. What do you remember about the Piper, Brett, Hart scene here, where maybe Piper forgets his line and, and Brett still has to deck him as they come off the air?
1: <sighs> Could have happened. I mean, I'll look. The one thing about Roddy <clears throat> is when he got excited, and it's one of the reasons that his promos. You talked about it earlier, and I, I didn't comment on it. But you know, oftentimes Roddy's Piper's promos were all over the fucking map, and they were some sometimes incoherent. But that was his gimmick. You know, it's the same reason that Hulk Hogan calls everybody brother because he can never remember anybody's names. So everybody's brother. That way nobody's offended when he calls you by the wrong name or doesn't reference you at all. But Roddy's gimmick was, you know, he, he oftentimes would just forget where he was going and go in a different direction. Somehow or sometimes, more often than not, it would generally work its way back around to making some sense. But there were times in the heat of battle that, that Roddy would blank out. So, yeah, it, it could have happened. Let's get to Slambury. It, it wasn't a big topic of debate you know, backstage when it was over. I mean, it wasn't like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. How could he forget that? Oh, my God. It wasn't that. It was, okay, well, it didn't go quite as planned. Let's move on. But it wasn't that big a deal.
0: Randy Savage beats Bret Hart at Bree by DQ. Roddy Piper is working as the referee here. And Brett's really trying to cement that he is the bad guy here. Um, two and a half stars, not the most interesting show ever. I think either you and I, or maybe, uh, Tony and I, we've covered this. It was, mm, it was what it was. Oh yeah. This is where we had our giant fight. I remember that. It's still fucking daytime by the way.
1: Uh, the next night <laughs> on Nitro, we're going to go back to. That. Hey, I, I've been doing some research. I have not forgotten that, and we are going to go back in time and we're going to revisit that scenario. I'm sure we will,
0: probably at every live show, and till we have to be pulled apart and separated and put in respective <laughs> corners. Uh, the next night on Nitro, Piper comes out, says he's not apologizing to Randy Savage, but then basically does. Um, and, and he's out later on the 25th, and he's still trying to work things out with Bret Hart. And to my surprise, it doesn't lead to an immediate match, but it does lead to slamboree where we got Hulk Hogan and Bret Hart on one side, Piper and Savage on the other. And Meltzer would write Piper got the weakest entrance reaction I've seen for him in years. And Baltimore should be a big Piper town. It gets a dud rating. It was not great. What did you think of this Slambery 1998 matchup here?
1: It was flat, and I think probably more than anything else, the lack of reaction to Piper probably was really the result of a lack of a great buildup and a great story. It just... It just wasn't a great story. The the, the connection wasn't there. You know, it was, again, one of those things that can look good on paper. You would think, wow, Hulk Hogan, Bret Hart, you know, together. Wow, this is going to be huge. And it just, it, you know, Macho Man, Rod, Roddy Piper, oh my God. It, it looked good on paper, but the story wasn't there and the chemistry wasn't there
0: the uh match right after is piper and savage it only goes a minute 37 uh it's not it's a dud on june 15th we've got uh him announcing that he is the commissioner of wcw and he's going to grant the fans the cage match they really want which is ddp and savage later in the show they fight to a no contest ddp and savage and piper is here to make a really slow count and page kicks out at two Piper is then attacked by Savage and, um, given a pile driver and it, it, he's involved in everything here, whether he's a referee or a commissioner, he's still in a very featured spot. Did he prefer sort of that on camera stuff instead of matches at this stage of his career? Do you think?
1: Yeah. I mean, he, look, he loved, yes, he did. I mean, Roddy was well aware of his limitations. So, you know, he he was more than happy to embrace different ways and means to enhance his character or his role or his heat or whatever um, by doing things that didn't involve necessarily physicality. It's just it was the nature of the beast in the time. So, yeah, he was he was quite comfortable with it. And it was, you know, it was our attempt to to do what we could do to get him as get him over as best we could. In those scenarios, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. He's still cutting promos
0: on Bret Hart, but then we fast forward to September seventh, Nitro, and we see Piper and Page beat Sting and Luger by DQ. When Kevin Nash interferes and puts uh, Piper into the post, and then Jackknifes TDP, and that sets up Fall Brawl, which we've just recently covered, which is fucking insanity. Uh, Team WCW, of course, as a reminder, is Roddy Piper, the Ultimate Warrior, and DDP. We just recently covered this on the archives. It got negative four stars. Uh, Thankfully, though, Piper knew, hey, uh, time to get the fuck out of here. And he's off TV until the February 8th Nitro, where he returns and beats Bret Hart for the United States title. And uh, I was always a big fan of their WrestleMania 8 match for the Intercontinental title. I think it's a criminally underrated match. Why was Roddy off of the show from September to February, and why bring him back and give him a win over Brett for the U.S. title?
1: Absence makes the heart grow fonder, and a big win over Bret Hart would only um, have have made that even more important. You know, again, going back to what I said earlier, and going back to the nature of Hulk Hogan's contract, his original one, um, I firmly believe that overexposing talent was just as dangerous as using them incorrectly or poorly or writing bad scripts for them or giving them horrible promos or putting them in horrible matches. Overexposure can kill a talent just as quickly as anything else. So giving Roddy some time off, you know, getting a little getting a little bit of the, you know, absence makes a hard growth or fonder factor kick in. And then giving him an important win was our methodology at least of of trying to get him back to where he needed to be
0: i guess we should mention here that the next week piper wrestles hulk for the world title and it ends with an nwo run-in and here we see scott hall zap roddy with a taser and then he puts on piper's kilt and prances around and that leads to super brawl scott hall is going to win the u.s title from roddy piper here in eight minutes and 19 seconds Today says this is actually Piper's third reign as U S champion, having won the first title from Ric Flair. And, uh, yeah, this one gets negative star in a quarter. Uh, I don't know. I mean, this feels like the wheels coming off a little bit. Meltzer would write the finish was even worse than the body of the match. And that wasn't easy. My guess is that Piper, who is from the old school star mentality where he hates to do jobs, would only do a job, which you pretty much had to do in this manner being also that he's not exactly fond of Hall and Nash, the post-match where Piper grabbed the belt and then it appeared nobody could figure out how to get out of it was beyond bad. what do you think of this? It is weird that supposedly these guys don't get along, but they just can't help but
1: be booked together. Well, the story dictated it and it was unfortunate. but I think the, it was not as much about lack of chemistry and the fact that they didn't get along, they didn't. But I think the the difficulty in the match and great finishes and great matches had a lot more to do with Roddy's limitations because of his hip, because of his age. And, but Roddy was never, by the way, uh, you know, going back, You know, perhaps somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. Did anybody ever look at Roddy Piper as a great technician? No. I mean, he was always a brawler. He right. was never a Chris Benoit. He was never a Bret Hart. He was never a Scott Hall. He was never an X-Pac. He was a character brawler that could cut amazing promos. Um, that was at the peak of his career. So certainly by this time in his career – You know his abilities or lack thereof because of the injuries that he sustained throughout his career, Um, and and just the fact that he was never the kind of guy that could go out and have a Dave Meltzer five star match, um, led to a lot of finishes that weren't exactly, you know what, you know some people would have wanted them to be, probably Roddy included.
0: Piper is, um, hmm, he's gone. After this, until the April 12th Nitro, he's doing commentary for the DDP Scott Steiner match a week later, he's doing skits with Piper and they're trying to commit Ric Flair to a mental hospital. And eventually he convinces David Flair to sign his dad over. And later in the show, of course, Flair comes out to total cheers and he's acting nuts and uh, he thinks he's the world champion and the president of the United States and uh <laughs> he's gonna give the national championship back to Florida and take it from Tennessee and <laughs> funny for what it is, no
1: doubt. Well it's good stuff though. I mean oh, that's absolutely come on that's I mean, that's classic Roddy Piper, Ric Flair. Those guys had a ball with that. Come on, man. Come on, you no, got to no, admit no, that's I admit great it. entertainment.
0: Listen, it is, it is silly, but it is fun. I think everybody enjoyed it for sure. Especially the live house that day.
1: Started, but, did they, but how many stars did Dave Meltzer give it? Come oh, on. No,
0: he doesn't do that. He rates matches, not skits and whatever. Oh, okay. All
1: right.
0: So, uh, the May 3rd Nitro Piper shows up and, um, Flair, <laughs> man, this whole beating up people at the nun house. Let's just talk about the match. Slamboree. Piper and Flair squaring off again. Piper gets a win by DQ, 12 minutes and 10 seconds. So after all this time, Flair and Piper back together again, two and a half stars is what it gets here. And Meltzer would report that apparently WCW has signed Piper to a three-year deal. What do you remember about him signing here? And I guess the early summer, 1998.
1: He did. That's what I remember. We were anxious to have him. He was anxious to sign. We were happy with him. He was happy with us. Business was good. Um, I didn't want to see him leave.
0: Was there ever a consideration? It was certainly speculated upon that maybe you guys would do a a Piper's pit type segment on Nitro.
1: It came up a lot. And and, and really it came up because that was something that Roddy really pushed hard for. Um, Hulk was actually pretty supportive of that idea as well because, again, said it before, come up again in the future, I'm sure, guys tend to want to go back to what they know worked back in the day. And, you know, with Roddy, that, you know, to, to Roddy, that was like a kind of a breakthrough for his career in the WWF. And he really wanted to do it again. But even, you know, and I know people are going to, you know, call bullshit on me for saying this, but the pacing of the show, you know, back in 97 and 98 was really critical for me. And even though we had a lot of promo segments and we had a lot of interview segments, they were ju- – generally, there was a reason for them. Generally, they 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 led to an altercation or a setup. They weren't just there for the sake of being there. And my concern with the Piper's Pit segments is just the nature of them to do them well, kind of like the flair for the gold segments used to be that Dusty used to write. is just the setup for them, especially on a live show would have been so time-consuming and would have slowed everything down so much that we would have been taping shows there till midnight or one o'clock in the morning or not taping but producing live shows so late you know to try to get all of that in but yeah roddy really wanted to do it it just there was just no way to make it work
0: it's a tale of two shows here because after giving it two and a half stars for the same guys at Slam slamboree when we get to the great american bash rematch It's a DQ, but this time the other way, Ric Flair beats Piper by DQ and it goes eight minutes and 16 seconds. It gets a dud rating and Meltzer would write, this was the single worst pay-per-view match that Flair has ever been in. So they are doing a match where the presidency of the company is at stake and it's a mid card match. He was not a fan of it. Buff Bagwell was involved here as well. Uh, what'd you think? Of their Great American Bash 1998 match that Meltzer clearly didn't dig.
1: I didn't either. You know, I would agree with with Dave on this one. It, it again, poor story, poor setup, poor pacing. Um, more than anything, poor story.
0: The next night on Nitro, Oakland is interviewing Flair and Arn Anderson, and he says he's fought roddy piper for 12 years but now he wants piper to be his vice president and six bagpipers lead piper to the ring and uh i don't know it feels kind of funny that you were fighting for the presidency the night before and now uh he's your vp a week later oakland would uh, introduce flair and piper and of course they're coming out with arn anderson and asia of all people they're coming out to piper's bagpipe music and um He's going to start taking some shots at Buff Bagwell and that eventually leads to Flair and Piper defeating Buff Bagwell and Dean Malenko in 10 minutes and 15 seconds. Uh this is starting to to sort of build towards a Buff Bagwell, Roddy Piper match at Bash at the Beach. Why was the decision made after having him work a couple of matches with Flair to then pivot to Buff Bagwell? What's the thought process?
1: Because I think we got as much out of him and Flair as we could get. I mean, the story we've just been telling, what is it? It's taken us through a year and a half. Yeah. And there's been a lot of Flair and Piper in the middle of all of that. At some point, you have to pivot. You can't keep telling different variations of the same story over and over and over and over again and expecting it to work.
0: Well, why is Buff the guy, though? Why is he chosen?
1: You know, Buff, Buff gets a lot of heat because of things that he's done since this time. But, you know, in 97, in 98, he did have a great look. He, he could work in the ring. He, he was, you know, not the best worker on the roster, but he certainly could work with just about anybody. And he, and he did have that character you wanted to see get his ass kicked. I mean, he did play a good heel role. You know, particularly at this time, so I, I don't think it should be that big of a stretch of imagination for a guy who is kind of coming up the ladder in Mark Bagwell to get an opportunity to work with an established babyface like Roddy Piper. I, I, you know, I, I think that should be fairly obvious. What's the thinking, or at, least, at least understandable? What's the
0: thinking in doing a boxing match and having Mills Lane as the referee? Of course, Mills Lane is the famous referee that I think most people remember was the dude who was turned into claymation for MTV during the celebrity death matches. And he's the referee who was there during the whole ear biting scenario. And there's just lots of famous mills lane boxing moments, but he's here and he's a referee in a boxing match between Roddy Piper and buff Bagwell. Is this just, Hey, they did this at WrestleMania with Booker T let's do it
1: again. No, it's not that at all. It's Roddy, Roddy boxed, Roddy, you know, built his character. A lot of the promos that he's done over the years, you know, he would recount the days, you know, as a fighter, you know, one of the unique things about Roddy is he often referred to wrestling matches as fights. He talked about the number of fights that he had, not the number of matches that he had. So Roddy oftentimes kind of framed himself in in a character as kind of a, a street fighter boxer. And this was something that Roddy felt that he could do um more effectively than he could go out and have you know a dave Meltzer, you know five star you know japanese match
0: he gave it a a half a star and and he says that uh by the way i guess we should mention buff won 34 seconds into the third round uh melzer would say this was bad but it could have been worse actually piper did a very good job of doing worked boxing and bagwell was also better than expected piper didn't even appear to tire at 48 years old with those big gloves. Bagwell tired, but not to the point that he couldn't perform. He gives it half a star, uh and that's really the the last big thing that Piper does with the company while you're there. You leave famously on September 9th, 1999. Did you keep in touch with Roddy after you left? What was the relationship like? Cuz he's still sticking around even after you're
1: gone. You know, I'm it- you, you probably figured this out about me. I'm I'm not a very good phone friend. You know, I don't chat with anybody um, as much as I love my son and my daughter. Um, I talked to my son today for the first time in two weeks for about 45 seconds. <laughs> uh, my daughter, I talk to once every, you know, couple weeks unless I'm there. You know, and if I'm if I'm in L.A. like I was last week, then I'm I make I squeeze out every minute that I can spend with her. But when it comes to staying in touch on the phone. I'm probably one of the worst. I'm good on text. Send me a text. I'll respond to it 24 hours a day usually or even an email. But I'm just not the kind of guy that stays in touch with anybody by phone. But was what was really interesting with Roddy and I is Roddy still, you know, even during this period of time and, and even afterwards, Roddy spent a lot of time in Los Angeles, either – Um, auditioning or, you know, meeting with writers and producers and studios and networks and so forth. And so did I. Uh, There was a period of time from about mm, 2001 to about 2009 or 10 when I kept a full-time apartment over on the beach in Santa Monica because I worked so regularly in LA. It was just easier to stay there and go home occasionally than it was to fly back and forth for meetings. So when I was in LA during that period of time, you know, LA is kind of a Hollywood is kind of a small, really a small community, and a lot of the meetings you have are, you know, people use the same restaurants and the same, they'll go to the same bars for drinks after work and things like that, where studio executives and writers and producers all kind of hang out. And I would, there were times, you know, I was over in Studio City in, you know, just outside of Burbank. And I'd walk into a Mexican restaurant and there's Roddy sitting all by himself, you know, either before or after a meeting, grabbing a bite to eat. And that happened really frequently with Roddy. I, I, I would imagine I ran into Roddy oh, once every six weeks, just kind of spontaneously because just we happened to be in the same building or restaurant or bar or whatever. Uh, and we would sit, we would visit and it was like. Here's the thing I remember about Roddy and I'm probably why I miss him for, I miss him for a lot of reasons. To me, I may have said this at the beginning of the show. Roddy was kind of a, in the most complimentary way I can possibly imagine saying it, he was a throwback and I miss that. He, he represented an era of, of the business that very few people do anymore in a real and genuine way. And he he lived it. He didn't just talk about it. A lot of people talk about it. Roddy lived it, and I miss that in him. I also miss his honesty, good, bad, or indifferent. He was always an honest – kid. there was nothing – if Roddy said something to your face, you knew he believed it and he meant it, good or bad. There was never – you never had to read between the lines with Roddy. You never had to worry about Roddy saying one thing to your face and another thing behind your back. That was not Roddy Piper, and I really genuinely miss that character – in people because it's so fucking rare in today's world. People are just not conditioned to be that honest anymore. Um, I miss the passion that Roddy had for the business. And I would see that passion again, not in what he said, but by what he did in the way he lit up like and I, again, I've, I know I've said this a couple of times on this podcast, it was like this childlike enthusiasm and his eyes would light up when he would get into a discussion about an idea or an angle or, or a finish or a moment in a match or an interview or anything else. He would light up in a way that very few people did or, or probably still do. Those are all of the things that I miss uh, about Roddy Piper. But he, I'm I'm so grateful that I had a chance to work with him. And I remember it was just a couple of years ago. Obviously, he passed away. And my wife and I were, Lori and I, we were on our Harley. We drove up to Bozeman and spent a little time trout fishing in Livingston, Montana. And we stopped for a beer on the way home. And Hulk called me. And said, did you hear about Roddy? Because I was, you know, I was on my Harley. We were in Yellowstone, didn't really have cell service, so I wasn't checking in with news or anything. And I was, I'll never forget, I was sitting at a bar in Livingston, I had a beer sitting in front of me and you know, Hawk said I me, mean, you're not gonna believe this. I was just talking to Roddy night before last and and now he's gone. And it was just I, I not because I had affection or respect for Roddy, and I don't want to make it sound like we were best friends or anything like that, because that wasn't the case. But there was a relationship there um, that I do miss. You know, I, I really do. And one of the last things I'll say, and I said this about Randy Savage, too, and it was true in Roddy's case as it, as it was with Randy's. One of the reasons I think I put Roddy on a bit of a pedestal um, in terms of people that I've had the pleasure and the honor of working with is because I remember seeing Roddy when Roddy wasn't even – he didn't even know I was around. He thought I was in catering or out on the floor doing something at the ring or something during the middle of the day. But I would watch Roddy as he talked to not only my kids, because my kids were around frequently, but I saw when there were other younger kids around, the way that Roddy would spend extra time and make so sure that those kids felt really, really important and that that brief moment of meeting Roddy Piper or talking to Roddy Piper was something that made them feel good about themselves. That's how I judge people. That, and, and Roddy Piper was – I'm going to get a tear in my – <laughs> Roddy, was, Roddy was the best of the best. He left quite a
0: legacy on professional wrestling and certainly WCW – he unfortunately passed away on July thirty first, two thousand fifteen. And of course, even though Eric left in ninety nine, he would go on to do more stuff, including the Starrcade Bret Hart Goldberg match, and he had appearances at Super Brawl two thousand. And um, ultimately, was released from WCW on August seventh, two thousand. And that was the end of his WCW story, but not the end of his story with wrestling and us as fans and. He certainly touched a lot of people, uh, Bruce Pritchard and Tony Schiavone and Eric Bischoff have all told their stories about Roddy and we hope that, uh, this was a fun visit down memory lane about some happier times. And, um, we appreciate you listening here on 83 weeks and I appreciate you allowing yourself to be uh, real and vulnerable with us today, Mr. Bischoff, to talk about, uh, one of the all time greats in professional wrestling. Thanks, man. And we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff.